Let's go to Ruth 3. That scripture reading was designed to get us uh, uh, familiar with what we're going to be seeing in Ruth chapter 3 this morning. You notice the language that Ezekiel uses there, that God uses in describing his relationship with his people, that he spread the corner of his garment over his people. He entered into covenant with them. It's it's rich in love and metaphors for marriage. And that's the way God thinks about his relationship with us. And it's what we see portrayed in the relationship between Ruth and Boaz in Ruth chapter 3. So that's why I had Hugo read that passage of scripture. So we've been in Ruth. We're going to be finishing it up next week. And right now, we've crossed the midway point. We've been taking a chapter at a time. And we've considered Ruth chapter 1 and chapter 2 in the previous two weeks. And now we're going to consider Ruth chapter 3 today. And it's been called, at least the the story of Ruth, has been called the greatest short story or one of the greatest short stories ever told. I mean, if you think about what a good story has, Ruth has it. Ruth has desperation and drama, it has conflict, it has redemption. In fact, every good story, I think if you think think of your favorite story, whether it be a book or a movie or a short story, a long-form story, think about it, most of those stories have at the heart of those stories a redemption theme. It's, it's a rescue story. It's a story that maybe it's an underdog who achieved a great... Victory, or maybe it's a it's a love story where the most unlikely of people somehow end up together, or maybe it's a it's an action adventure story where you have a hero swoop in and save the day. I mean, one of the reasons that I think we've had this comic book Marvel DC resurgence over the last five years and these movies raking in billions of dollars is because I think deep down people want to be saved. I think deep down inside, we want to recognize a hero coming in, swooping in and saving the day, rescuing us from a bad situation. And yeah, there's the special effects and the cool stuff and all that plays into it too. But at the heart of the story is a redemption story. Why are those things so popular? I think in part because that's the story of the universe. That's the story that we're living in is a redemption story. The Bible is a redemption story. It's a story about a bride that has gone away and left her home and fled into a far country, namely God's people. And God is on a rescue mission through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to bring them back to himself. The Bible begins in a garden where a love relationship is arranged and it ends in a city where a marriage takes place. And the Bible is all about a love story. And that's why the book of Ruth, in a sense, in miniature, captures the story of the Bible. And so the the, the book of Ruth is really two love stories. It's a, a human love story, but it's also a divine love story. And I want to show us both of those things this morning. It's a human story in the sense that it's a beautiful story of a growing and nurturing romance between two people, namely Boaz and Ruth. But, of of course, on another level entirely, it's the story of a divine romance, namely a God who has set his heart on his people to redeem them. And I want to look at both of those this morning. But first, just a brief review, and then we're going to survey Ruth chapter 3. I quoted this hymn at the beginning of our series in Ruth chapter 1, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, written by William Cooper. 
And one of the verses says, you fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. And surely this verse is a great summary of the first two chapters of Ruth. In chapter one, you have those dreaded clouds. You have the time of the judges, which is an awful political time in the history of Israel. You have a famine. You have the escape into Moab, which was a foreign, idolatrous, sinful culture. And then you have death upon death. It's those dreaded clouds. But in chapter two, as we saw last week, those clouds are actually big with mercy. And they begin to break in blessings on the head of Naomi and Ruth. The chapter begins in desperation as Ruth heads out into the fields to begin gleaning and seeking food. And she encounters incredible provision. She encounters a man named Boaz who not only takes care of her, but goes above and beyond and makes sure all of her needs are met. And Ruth returns to Naomi at the end of the chapter in celebration as they acknowledge that God has provided for them a redeemer. God has turned Naomi and Ruth's mourning into dancing. Where Naomi said in Ruth chapter 1 verse 20 that the Almighty had dealt bitterly with me. By chapter 2 verse 20, all that's given way to his kindness has not forsaken the living and the dead. And so we enter into Ruth chapter 3 this morning on a note of celebration. And Naomi's been transformed. At least she's beginning to have her heart transformed because there is hope on the horizon in the form of a man named Boaz who might be able to serve as a redeemer for them. Now, just to be clear, in that in that ancient time period, when women were like this, like Ruth and Naomi, who were completely destitute, then they had to look to their family to try to find a man within their clan or within their family who could take responsibility for their welfare and raise them up out of destitution and poverty and and take care of them and provide them security and provision. And they hoped to find that in a man by the name of Boaz. So Naomi is beginning to initiate now, and she's going to tell Ruth to go and meet with Boaz and, in a sense, propose to him. So we're going to see that take place in Ruth chapter 3 this morning. So before we get to the two love stories, let's do a survey of Ruth chapter 3. We're going to read through it, and we're going to notice three different scenes that take place, okay? There's three scenes in Ruth chapter 3. The first scene is verses 1 to 5, and it's Naomi telling Ruth to get prepared to go visit Boaz. So let's read Ruth chapter 3, 1 through 5 together. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, said to Ruth, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be, that it may be well with you? Stop right here for a second. Do you notice Naomi's attitude changing a little bit? She's concerned about somebody other than herself. You remember in chapter 2 and chapter 1, this woman is deeply struggling. She is consumed with her own problems and troubles. What's happened to change the situation? Grace has happened. See, when you're desperate... And you get provided for and you celebrate, you begin to love and care about other people. This is why the gospel is the only thing that will ultimately change a person's heart. Because what it takes is you being treated with grace for you to extend grace to others. You being treated with compassion and love and forgiveness and provision. And turn, and that will, that is the only thing that will turn your heart and your eyes out to the situation of others. That's what's happened to Naomi here. She's concerned about Ruth's welfare. Verse 2, is not Boaz our relative 
with whose young women you were. See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lays, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So she tells her, get dressed up, go visit him. All right, now it's very interesting the time that she encourages all this to happen. It says that it's after Boaz has eaten and drank, so it's in the evening, it's late, it's when he's tired and has had a full share of his food and, and, a, and an exhaustion from the day. But notice she says that he was out winnowing barley, verse 2, and he's at the threshing floor. Now, the threshing floor was not a safe place to be, especially at night. You remember, Boaz is concerned about Ruth's safety in Ruth chapter 2. That's why he tells his young men to not, to not sexually assault her, to not, I mean, this is not, this is not a, a necessarily safe environment. And Naomi's not actually being super safe here herself in sending Ruth into this situation. But she's trusting the Lord. She acknowledges that we got to initiate something here. So she goes out and she tries to get Ruth ready to visit Boaz. And Ruth is submissive and, and agrees to do it. Now, lest we think this is just a superficial, shallow kind of thing where she just tells her, you know, get dressed up, go visit him, you know, make yourself attractive, put on some midnight allure, you know, get some get some perfume on and all that stuff. Well, far from it being just that, it is certainly that, but it's more than that. Her dressing herself Notice the language here in verse 3. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on the cloak and go down. This is this is supposed to signal to Boaz that Ruth is, mo- is moving out of a time of mourning. Mourning loss and death and depression. And now she's preparing herself and she's she's signaling to him that she is interested and eligible for marriage. So she's taking some initiative here, and they're going out to do this. Now, when she tells him to expose his feet, verse 4, we don't need to think any much more beyond the fact that there would be a night chill in the air. And so by Ruth going in to this threshing floor, Barabaz would be asleep and exposing his feet, that that would awaken him. You all know what it's like to be awakened without your covers in the middle of the night. A draft comes in the room, like, oh, awaken. And, And then you look around and... And he would see this woman, well, at least the former, smell something or recognize something in the air. And so that that would be the best time to have a private conversation with him. And most importantly, the fact that she's at his feet symbolizes her dependence on him in view of her bold marriage proposal. So that's the first scene. Naomi encouraging Ruth to go and visit Boaz. Second scene, verses 6 through 13. This is the actual visitation where Ruth goes to meet Boaz at the threshing floor. Verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. 
Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So what's what's going on here? You notice this is this is pretty this is this is meant to create tension in the story. The writer is trying to help us feel something of this tension. And so we see Ruth's request here in verse nine. She says, spread your wings over your servant. Now, spread your wings is for engagement. Much like the current engagement engagement ring that we would give. So Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1, Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 20, Malachi 2.16. What she's saying in effect is, I would like to be the one with whom you pledge your faithfulness and with whom you make a marriage covenant. Spread your wings over your servant. That is, provide for me. Be my husband. Look after me. Be my redeemer. This language of spreading the wings over has already been used in chapter 2, verse 12. This is what Boaz says about Ruth when he notices her and notices her history of faithfulness. Chapter 2, verse 12, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So she is seeking in Boaz a secondary refuge. God is her ultimate refuge in the deepest and most meaningful sense. And she's not only asking Boaz to marry her, but also to become a demonstration of the Lord's covenant love toward her. In fact, you could think in Ruth's own mind, as Boaz said those words in chapter 2, the Lord repay you for what you have done, a full reward be given you by the Lord. Boaz is part of that reward. Boaz is part of that reward for Ruth's faithfulness and her seeking refuge under the wings of God. And Boaz is the very one that says those words, and he becomes the fulfillment of those words later in the story. And Boaz responds with humility and gratitude. He says in verse 10, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first. What does he mean by that? In Ruth claiming that Boaz is her redeemer, it's a great kindness to Boaz that she would say such a thing. And Boaz is also impressed that Ruth is not merely seeking marriage with eligible young men because that would not benefit Naomi. See, what's going to benefit Naomi is her marrying into the family of a kinsman redeemer, someone from the clan of Elimelech, which is who is Naomi's husband. So as a result of that, that would benefit Naomi. So Ruth would not only be benefited by having a partner in marriage, but Naomi would be benefited through the redemption that Boaz would provide as well, whereas she would not get that if she just pursued it outside the family with another young man. And the first act that Boaz is referring to is the one that he referred to in chapter 2, verse 11, where he said, 
All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to the people that you did not know before. That was her first great kindness, that she would cleave to Naomi, that she would hold on to her mother-in-law, that she would not forsake her, that she would care for her, extend compassion and selflessness at great personal cost. And Boaz responds with a promise to redeem her, to marry her. He says in verse 11, Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For my fellow townsmen know that you're a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. But he acknowledges that he may not be able to do it. Because there may be a redeemer who is closer in the family line than him. See, this goes back to Leviticus chapter 25, verses 48 and 49, that lays out an order to what should happen in the need of redemption. The order is brother, uncle, cousin, or close clan relative. Boaz may only claim his right to redeem if another redeemer is not able to or is not willing to. And so Boaz is going to content, him, content himself to rest in, and trust God. So he says, in, a fact, in fact, to Ruth, we'll see. As the Lord lives, we'll see. We'll see if I'm eligible to do it. And then we have a third scene, verses 14 through 18, where Ruth returns from the threshing floor after staying overnight. And by the way, let me just say a word about that. And we'll get to this when we talk about human love under the, under the first point. But don't, don't, don't think that Boaz has just invited Ruth to stay overnight because he intends to sleep with her. We're going to see that in just a second. Rather, he intends to protect her and keep her safe. Because if she were to venture out into the night, out of the threshing floor, there would be men who might take advantage of her. And he was not willing to have that happen. So anyway, verse 14. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. See, he's protecting her reputation. There was prostitution. There was all sorts of things happening uh, around that around that threshing floor. And he didn't want his reputation nor her reputation to be besmirched as a result of her actions. And he said, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. And she held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city and then she came to her mother-in-law. She said, how'd you fare my daughter? And then he, she told her all that the man had done for her saying these six measures of barley he gave to me for, he said to me, you must not go back empty handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. And there we close on the cliffhanger. What's going to happen between Boaz and Ruth. Imagine this is this is the this is scene three. Movie ends. Lights come up. Everybody's like, "Oh man, what's gonna happen? Got to come back next year. We're making the fourth installment." Just a quick application about trusting God's timing here. We learn a lot about how providence, how God guides things, and how we're supposed to respond to this. See, Naomi and Boaz are two different portraits of how to respond to the providence of God. Naomi sees providence as opportunity and runs ahead. Go, go, get dressed, go to the threshing floor. Look, I know it's dangerous, but just do it. 
This is God. This is God's provision for us. Boaz, more controlled, maybe. So he doesn't read into Providence. Well, she's here. She wants to get married. We should get married. Here's what Sinclair Ferguson says about how to judge God's guidance through his providence. He says, we must not totally misjudge Naomi. She has a sense of what God's providential purpose might be. But hunches about what God is doing should not be turned into schemes by which we engineer circumstances in order to bring those purposes to pass in an accelerated way. Naomi recognizes what God might be doing, but she does not submit herself to the principle that God's purposes are to be fulfilled in God's ways and at God's time. But by contrast, Boaz, in this context, severely tried at Naomi's hands, is set before us as the model kinsman redeemer. He is a man who, of course, desires the best for his own life under the providence of God, but who also has a resolute commitment to the principle that God's purposes must be fulfilled in God's ways and at God's time. Before Psalm 37 was written, Boaz illustrated its great maxim, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And I think that's what we see here. We see a commitment on the part of Boaz to delight himself in the Lord and wait on God's time, knowing that God will provide if it is indeed his will. And we don't need to run ahead or read into his providence permission to do that. So that's just a brief application about guidance. Now let's get into the two points of human love and divine love. So I want to look at the two love stories. I want to look at it, first of all, on the horizontal level. And I've got three applications for human love relationships and three applications for a divine, the divine love relationship. The human love relationship between Ruth and Boaz, which is what we can learn in our own human interactions and relationships, and then the divine relationship between God and his people, which is illustrated in the way Boaz and Ruth are treating one another. And they all start with R because I'm weird. And I've got to find a way to make it fit. So here's the first one. These are three under human relationships, okay? Three applications that I want to talk about. First of all, restraint. Restraint. Now I want to speak to the young ladies in the crowd for a moment. The young ladies here. So teens, this is for you. This next, these next several applications are for you guys. It's also for us married, married folk out there. And so you can learn from it as well. But I really want to speak to the people who are on the front end of this whole relationship thing. And I want you to press in and learn some things so that you can avoid some heartbreak and some heartache and ultimately some discipline from God. All right. So here is restraint. So notice this, ladies. What are you doing in order to ensure that a young man catches your eye? Shortening your hemline, perhaps? Flirting a little bit? Are you prepared to go as far as Ruth was prepared to go here? Put yourself in a compromising position where you're millimeters away from having someone have his way with you? Is that how you've prepared to go get that man? It's something of what we see in Ruth. Even though Ruth is godly and she's committed to God's way, And she's committed to God's time. Nevertheless, she's listening to Naomi. She's taking initiative in her, in her own, she's taking kind of initiative on her own. 
and plunging forward. First Timothy chapter two, verses nine and 10 say, likewise, also women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. First Peter chapter three, verses three and four. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is God, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, why do I read those verses? I do not read those perp- those verses as a way of saying that physical beauty or outward beauty is not important. The Bible commends outward beauty. There's, it's not to say that there's no place for outward beauty and caring about hair and makeup and clothes and presentation. It's not wrong. But Scripture makes much of attractiveness, and when it does so, it counsels us not only to match, to have outer beauty, but to make sure it's matched by inner beauty. The point is, don't make your beauty only skin deep. Pursue character. Pursue godliness. Pursue, be the kind of woman that Ruth is. Yes, she got dressed up. Yes, she presents herself to Boaz. She does it in a submissive posture. She does it carrying with it a great deal of character. God is her God. She's clinging to him. She's holding to him. She's taking refuge in him. She's devoting herself to good works. She's devoting herself to caring for her mother-in-law. She's devoting herself to providing. She's devoting herself to hard work. She's devoting herself to all the things she should be devoting herself to. She's not just man-hungry. She's living a faithful life. And God is providing a man for her. Very important. Very important lesson we learn here about how to pursue relationships. Let it be God's provision. Let it be because you were found in the way of faithfulness. You were found in the way of godliness and walking with the Lord and seeking to please Him. And lo and behold, God provides for you. Much more could be said about that. But let me get, let me turn to the young men. Here's a point for you. Resolve. Resolve. I don't want to just... Have a go with the ladies this morning. Let me address the young men as well. Do you have the integrity that Boaz has? Boaz is an absolute model of godliness. You have to admire him. It's in the middle of the night. He's been eating and drinking and his heart is merry. Don't think drunk by that. Just think settled and happy. This is about as close to temptation as you're ever going to get. Threshing floors in the Old Testament are synonymous with places of indiscretion. Just read. You can do a word study on it. It would not have been unusual for this to have been ended in absolute tragedy. And it's absolutely wonderful and astonishing that Boaz reacts with such composure. He reminds me of Jonathan Edwards, who wrote in his diary as a young man, quote, resolved not to do or say anything in soul or body, but will tend to the glory of God. Boaz is not about to mistake temptation for opportunity. He's not about to take advantage of the situation. 
Listen, brothers, young men, are you listening to me? It might be really culturally trendy and what the world is telling you to do. It might be what your friends are telling you to do or saying for you to do. It might be what you learn in school tomorrow morning and when you gather together and talk about what you did over the weekend. But if you want to be a man of God, if you want to be Christ-like, if you want to follow Jesus Christ, there's something for you to learn from Boaz here. Because he finds himself in a moment of temptation and he's marked by absolute resolve and integrity to honor God. He's marked by integrity and I think it's absolutely wonderful. He doesn't let his affection for Ruth overrun his principles. Boaz submits to God. See, here's the difference between worship and devotion to God and idolatry. Idolatry would put, if you're in Boaz's situation, would put Ruth at the center... And say, I must have her now. Self-will is governing it. Worship and devotion to God will put God at the center, put his will at the center, and said, I will wait on God to provide. First Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Young men, you are to relate to younger women as your sister. Would you do that with your sister, your physical sister? No, the, the standard is in all purity. The standard is what Boaz does here. He's not about to take advantage of Ruth. He's interested in providing for her and taking care of her and making sure she is safe, not in taking advantage of her sexually. Number three, here's a third application, respect. This is for everybody. So we've got restraint. We've got resolve. We've got respect. Did you notice what Boaz says about Ruth here in verse 11? Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. You're a worthy woman. Notice chapter 2, verse 1. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So you've got a worthy man and you've got a worthy woman. What does Boaz, the worthy man, notice about this worthy woman, Ruth? Her fine clothes? No, it's dark. The scent of perfume? No. I don't even think it was the physical beauty of Ruth, although he had noticed her in the field, and he was pretty attracted to her. There's a beautiful hint of that in chapter 2 when he asks his men, who is that young girl winnowing on the corner? He sees her, and he's attracted, and that's great. That's great. And you've got to think that he's something. He sees, he's seen something in her physically that he's attracted to, but it's not, that's not all that's there. There was something so absolutely beautiful about that that Boaz was attracted to that he was willing to wait for it. And all the people, his men, were talking about it. And that's what attracted him. What was the foundation of this relationship? Ian Duguid puts it this way, the commitment that Ruth and Boaz had to one another was built on their common character which is always a much better foundation for a lasting relationship than mere physical attraction. 
end quote. Their match was a character match. And that's what made it a love match. Because we typically are attracted to and attract people who share our character, for better or for worse. The object of your affections reveals a lot about your own heart. The reason why Boaz is not going after all these girls is because they're not worthy. The reason why Ruth is not going after all these young men is because they're not worthy. Ruth and Boaz are people of substance. They're people of depth. They're people who care about each other's hearts more than they just care about what they can see physically. When Christian young and not so young people talk about what they're looking for in a spouse, their lists are not always replete with spiritual characteristics. In fact, it often emerges that a completely different list actually actually has priority in practice a list in which physical beauty and outward charm top the list. But Boaz and Ruth seem to have had a far more biblical agenda in this area than most people do. It was a character match. I'm telling you, the depth of oneness that you are meant to experience in marriage is shared most deeply by a person who shares the same object of your affection, which is God. Boaz loves the Lord. Ruth loves the Lord. They're great for each other. I remember being illustrated to me in college, a triangle. Imagine a triangle here. When we were, you know, we were all in those days looking to get married or entertaining the possibility or thinking about those sorts of things. And I remember one of the older men drew a triangle on the, on the board and he put God at the top and he put you and your spouse at the bottom two corners. And he said, as you move closer to God, you move closer to one another. And so he would take the lines all the way up. And as we move closer to God together, lo and behold, we got closer to one another as well. And that's the way marriage is designed to operate. It's by two people who in their hearts love the Lord, are pursuing the Lord together, and as a result find themselves being drawn closer in greater love toward one another as well. And that's what we see in Ruth and Boaz. So I challenge you to young, younger folks to pray through that. Think about that. Don't make mistakes in these areas. Exercise restraint, have resolve and have respect and see what the Lord will do in writing your own love story. So that's the first point. There's some horizontal lessons about human love relationships. Let's turn now in the last few minutes to three vertical Lessons about God's relationship to us. And those three words are going to be rest, redemption, and response. First of all, rest. Notice how, did you notice how the chapter began and ended? It has rest at the beginning and the end. Let me show you that. Look at chapter, Ruth chapter 3 verse 1 again. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? And then the end, verse 18, she replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So we've got rest at the beginning and the end. The principle here is that the Redeemer doesn't rest until he accomplishes rest for his beloved. The Redeemer 
does not rest until he accomplishes redemption for his beloved. Furthermore, we see that the Redeemer does this on behalf of the Lord. And this can be seen in the connection the author makes between Boaz's and Ruth's statements about wings. Boaz says, a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, chapter 2, verse 12. And then Ruth, in a manner of speaking, views Boaz as the fulfillment of the Lord's wings when she says, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer, chapter 3, verse 9. So Ruth, chapter 3, points to the actual incarnation of our redeemer, Jesus, who promises that I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find Rest for your souls. It's the same Greek word for rest that's used here in Ruth in the Septuagint. Exact same word. Jesus is the one in whom we find rest. He is our redeemer. He is the one that did not rest until he accomplished redemption for us. He came into the earth. He lived a perfect life, which we had failed to live. He died on the cross for our sin. And he gave it up and he said, it is Finished. It is finished. He accomplished what he came to do, our redemption. And now he invites all of us as a gentle and lowly in heart redeemer to come to him. All of us who are weary and heavy laden to find rest under his wings. That's what he said in Matthew 23, right? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you under my wings, but you would not. He spread his wings wide open and said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he makes that same call this morning. If you're here, if you're discouraged, if you're broken, if you're sinful, if you're in need of a redeemer, if you're a Christian who needs a redeemer, just like we all do, come to him afresh this morning and rest in him. Second, redemption. The real love story in this book is not about Boaz and Ruth. The real love story is behind the scenes. It's the love of God for us. His straying, fickle, sinful people. This love took its fullest shape in the coming of Jesus Christ. His love for us took him further than a grain pile at midnight. It caused him to leave the glories of heaven and come and live as an ordinary worker. It led him to come as a baby to Bethlehem where he found no refuge. Unlike Ruth, there's no place of rest for Jesus in Bethlehem. No godly Boaz to protect him. Instead, he had to make do with a temporary stable before he was driven out, having to flee for his life even when he was a baby. And this love caused Jesus to abandon his eternal glory and become a servant, someone who was of no reputation, despised and rejected of men. This same love of God took Jesus all the way to the cross. And there, in the midst of darkness, far deeper than any ordinary midnight, he offered himself up for the sins of his people. And there, he was abandoned by the Father, who turned aside his face because he could not and would not look upon his own son, disfigured as he was in bearing our sin. Jesus didn't just risk his life, he gave it. Why? Because we are such wonderful people and so thoroughly deserve it? No, certainly not. It's because God was so committed to saving sinners like us that this was the only way it could be done. 
It's because God so loved the world that he gave his son, his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's our redeemer. And final application. What's a response? Response. Which, how should we respond to all of this? Do you know? Do you know this love of God? Have you responded by giving your heart to him? Disfigured by sin, though it is, your heart is all that you have to give. So give it to him. He will be your redeemer and he'll receive you into his family. He will cover you with his wings and he'll be your refuge. And he'll spread the robe of Christ's righteousness over you to cover your nakedness. And that's the good news of the gospel. No matter how undeserving you are, no matter how you've messed it up in all these human relationships, you say, I didn't have restraint, resolve, or respect. But you can have redemption. You can have redemption. You could have blown it. You could have seen your sin. You look at Boaz and Ruth and said, yeah, that's how it should have been done. I didn't do it that way. I blew it. No, you didn't. In one sense, yeah, you blew it. But in another sense, you just... Gave yourself an opportunity to need a savior. You you made you you revealed to yourself your own need, your own need for redemption. So matter, no matter how undeserving you are, no matter what you've done or where you've been, the the invitation is open to come and be redeemed. God will welcome you for the sake of Christ. He loves you that much. And Christians, fellow brothers and sisters have a response for us as well. We are the redeemed of the Lord. What is our calling? To say so. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. There are people in this community that you interact with every day, neighbors, co-workers, friends, family members, who need you to say so. Say that you have a redeemer. Tell them your story. There's a love story that needs to be told in Owensboro. And it needs to be told to wandering sheep who are still out in the cold. There are people who do not yet know that God has loved them this much. So how can we keep quiet? How can we not speak of the glories of this God who has loved us so much, whatever the risk? We must look for and make opportunities to speak of our Redeemer and let people know this love of God. Because having been so loved by him, we must surely declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Ruth chapter 3 and the opportunity to dip in this morning and see in it a portrait of how human relationships, even in the midst of a fallen world, can function to your glory. Pray for all of the marriages in our church and the marriages to come, that they would all be marked by this sort of selfless, other-oriented, God-glorifying love, where as they grow closer to you, they grow closer to each other as well. And thank you that all of these marriages are meant to point forward to the great marriage. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
that he might present her to himself without spot or wrinkle or any such blemish, but that she might be holy and blameless. Wives, submit to your husbands as Christ, as the church submits to Christ. Lord, our marriages are meant to picture. Our love stories are not the point. They're a greater story. They're a story that's meant to communicate the love story of all, which is the story of God pursuing his wayward bride to bring her home, spread his wings over her, and take care of her forever. Thank you that you have done that for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.